2: look for the gray area on Mondays only from here on out. I know this new rhythm might take some getting used to, but we'll get the hang of it in no time. We're gonna lean into what we do best here, bringing you rich, thoughtful conversations every week, and maybe even some special series later this year. So stay tuned and stay subscribed. Now, here's today's show. There are a handful of topics that I almost force myself to not think about because the thoughts lead to a dead end. At the top of that list is climate change. It's one of those problems that starts to overwhelm me when I consider the scale and the implications and all the barriers to tackling it. But I also know I can't ignore it because it's real and it's getting more urgent. The average global temperature was as hot as it's ever been, or at least as hot as we've ever recorded it to be, several days already this month. And if you live in the Northeast United States, you've probably noticed the smoke blanket looming over you in recent weeks thanks to wildfires in Canada. By now, we're all pretty much aware of the warning signs around us. The question a lot of us have asked ourselves at various points is, what is my responsibility in this situation? What can I, as an individual, do? There isn't an easy answer here, in part because the problem is obviously too big for any one of us to solve. But if you're a parent, as I am, the climate predicament takes on an additional dimension you have to wonder not just about the ethics of raising children in a very unstable world. You also have to decide in a very concrete way what you really value and whether or not you're willing to live those values. I'm Sean Allen and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Elizabeth Cripps. She's a professor of political theory at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And she's the author of a new book called Parenting on Earth, A Philosopher's Guide to Doing Right by Your Kids and Everyone Else. Cripps writes about issues like climate change and the ethics of collective responsibility. And her work has always emphasized the real possibilities for political reform. In her new book, Cripps makes what might seem like a strange turn to parenting, but it's not strange at all because it's about the responsibilities we have as parents and citizens to build a sustainable future. The book walks the reader through the real life choices we're all facing, whether we have kids or not. And it explores what it means to be a climate activist in a world that forces us to make complicated and sometimes contradictory choices. So I was excited to have Elizabeth on the show to talk about all of these issues. Elizabeth Cripps, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So obviously this is a book about parenting. We're going to talk a lot about parenting. You have two daughters, right? How old are they?
3: They are 10 and nearly eight. Oh, wow having them was what inspired me to write the book really and made me think about climate change and these other emergencies in a new way. I'd already known how important climate justice was and then suddenly it was my own children whose future was at stake and it seemed, it seemed to matter to me in a whole new way and I felt it was really important for me as a philosopher but also as a person to try and figure out what it actually meant to be a parent at the moment.
2: You are a philosopher. You have a pretty diverse intellectual background. I am curious how you became interested in these two issues, our parenting responsibilities on the one hand and the climate crisis on the other. I mean, this does seem like a space where your academic interest and your private life as a parent sort of converge, but how did you find yourself here thinking about this, writing this book?
3: They do very much converge. You're you're right. I mean, I've written and thought about climate justice since I started my academic career. So when I did my PhD, which I finished back in 2008, that was looking at collective responsibility and climate change. So that's very much been my focus academically for my whole career. But then when I had my first daughter, I just couldn't stop making the link between all these new responsibilities that I had to her and the sort of state of the world for the next generation. And there was surprisingly little that was written about this the sort of direct question of what as parents we should be doing about climate change because we owe it to our own children there's a lot about intergenerational justice generally there's this amazing philosophical literature looking at in general questions of you know what we owe our children what special duties we have to them and why but this specific question which seems so important to me hadn't been massively discussed and i thought actually i really need to figure this out
2: my son just turned four about three weeks ago. And
3: oh my goodness,
2: this will, I'm sure, come up throughout this conversation. But the sorts of questions you're raising in the book are questions that my wife and I have sort of I don't know if it's out of cognitive dissonance or whatever, but we almost just had to stop talking about it because we didn't know what to think or say or do about it. So we just kind of brushed it aside and just kind of got on with things because sometimes these sorts of conversations can become a little overwhelming and you feel like you don't really have any answers and you don't really have any power. But I'm going to confront some of these tensions in this conversation.
3: Well, thank you. And I think you're right. I mean, there is a huge amount of cognitive dissonance here. I mean, we we know so much about what's going on with climate change, but it's so uncomfortable to accept the consequences of it for our daily lives, the things that we would need to change, the political change that we need to bring about. But it is easier in many ways just to try and hide from it. And I think as parents, it's sort of almost doubly hard because on the one hand, we just have so much more to do and worry about. And thank goodness, you know, if your child is four, that parenting seems like not just a full time job, but like a full time job three times over. And then on top of this, you've also got this other new motivation for caring so much about the climate crisis. So I think the kind of emotions that it it brings out for us as parents, once we acknowledge them, they can be really hard to deal with. I think that's why in the book, I end up talking about the psychology, and I really try to delve into that as well as the philosophy, because I think we need to understand how we can cope with this ourselves and how we can adapt how we think.
2: Some of these tensions you raise in the book about our responsibilities to our kids, our responsibilities to ourselves, to other people, to future people. I struggle with this a ton, and I think I always will. I get the sense, reading your book, that you think living an ethical life at this moment basically demands that we be good global citizens. First of all, is that even right? Is that how you see it?
3: Yes. I think, broadly speaking, I would say that. I think even if we start from really kind of uncontroversial moral ideas, the idea that you know we owe it to our fellow humans not to kill them and to help them if we easily can— then because of the way in which we live in such an interconnected global way with an impact through our combined actions on so many people, we have to think in terms not just of our kind of impact on the people that we're closest to or that we you know, walk past in the street, but on the people that we impact through the lives that we live, the choices that we make buying. And I think that the way that it makes sense to think about that is to say we need to be good global citizens.
2: I've always struggled with that phrase a little bit for admittedly annoying, pedantic political theory reasons. You know, the world isn't a polis and therefore one can't be a citizen of it. But I get what people are trying to say when they talk about global citizenship. At least I think I do. I'm actually curious what it even
3: means to you now you're you're completely right to flag it up because different people will use it in different ways, yeah. and there will be some kind of accounts of global citizenship that are much more kind of complex and demanding than the one that I'm starting with. i mean i'm I'm literally just saying we have some duties to our fellow human beings, whoever they are. And among other things, that means designing our institutions. Living together in societies in a way which protects human rights for those within the societies and those outside them rather than violating them. And that being a good global citizen means playing your part to try and make sure that we do have institutions which are just in that really basic moral sense.
2: Yeah. Any author decides to write a book because they think the world needs that book for whatever reason. You know, what was your reason for writing this book? Do you feel like parents, at least? in our respective societies, have become too indifferent, too selfish, what?
3: I don't think parents have become selfish. I think that there is an understanding of good parenting in societies like ours, sort of relatively rich societies, which is very kind of individualistic and often quite consumer driven. Mm. So we think that when we become parents, there's a sort of idea often not only that we have a kind of moral free pass to focus only on our children because they're so important to us, but also that we tend to think about this as focusing on their immediate well-being, but also their economic opportunities, what we buy them, what we do with them as individuals. And I think that in that process, in thinking, oh, my goodness, we need to, and perhaps we even should throw all of our money at getting as many opportunities and goods for our children as we can, we need to step back and think, well, actually, what do our children need together? What sort of a background are they going to have for this adulthood that we're trying to build them up for? And if the very environment that they're going to live in is threatened, if the society that they're going to grow up in is fundamentally unjust, then maybe as parents, we need to think more about changing that and a bit less on, you know, how many things can I buy for my child?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think apathy is definitely a concern, you know, not just for parents, for all of us. But I also think fatalism is an even greater temptation. It is so easy to convince yourself that your actions won't really make a difference, can't make a difference. And so if you're a parent, the instinct is to just focus on your kids, since that's all you can control. That instinct, while justifiable, I think is also dangerous and and misguided. Is that the kind of instinct, the kind of attitude that you're really trying to push back against the most in the book? The idea that your actions won't make a difference, they can't make a difference because the problems are at such a scale that you can't do anything meaningful anyway. So you just close ranks, focus on your kids, take care of your kids since that's all you can control.
3: Yeah, I think that is completely understandable in many ways as an attitude. And yes, it is something that I'm trying to push back on by making this point that we shouldn't just think about what we can do as individuals, but actually what we can do together. And this moral idea of a shared or in some sense a collective duty that says, well, sometimes we owe things to other people that we can't each do, but if we all work together, we could do. And in that sense, we share a moral duty to do this. And I think in this case, we can say, well, there's a lot of things that I want my children to have. And as their parent, arguably, I have a responsibility to try and give them that, like a flourishing future, a planet that they can actually you know, grow up and and live well in. But I can't do that alone. But actually, all these other parents are in exactly the same situation. And if we work together, there's an incredible amount we can do. Parents have real political power. If you think, you know, what a proportion of the voting public is parents. There's a huge amount of force that we could use, both politically and economically, if we cooperate as parents. So I would really push back against this idea that we're powerless because it's a mistake to think about this only as what you can do as an individual.
2: According to Elizabeth, there is no conflict between being a good parent and a good citizen. But I wonder if it's more complicated than that. I'll ask her about this after a quick break. com slash box you write in the book and i'll just quote you here you write the conflict between being good parents and decent human beings isn't just overstated it's partly illusory Tell me about that alleged conflict and why you think it's illusory, because I'm not so sure it is, but I'm also not sure... That I'm not sure. So I want to hear your thoughts.
3: So I think it's partially illusory. So this comes back to this idea that we think that being a good parent means kind of throwing all of our money, all of our time at our own children and means doing that in a very sort of individualistic, consumer driven, focused way. We buy them things. We do things with them. we, We focus on their education and so on. And we tend to think that, well, because we have these special duties to our children, we owe them a lot because we brought them into the world, we made a commitment to them. We think, well, actually, it's fine if that means that we're not doing other things to help those people in the world who really need help to avoid the suffering caused by climate change or global poverty. Because we think, well, I'm not being a bad person. I'm being a good parent in focusing only on my child. And of course, there is attention because, you know, nobody has unlimited time and parenting does take up a lot of time. But what I try and say in the book is, well, on the one hand, actually, it's too simplistic to say, well, just because I have a child, I can legitimately do everything for them and nothing for anybody else. There's a limit to how much being a parent justifies you giving your child luxuries when other people are starving. Right. But even apart from that, I think this conflict is partly illusory because what our own children need is a safe, just future in which these global emergencies are challenged. And that is something that we can only get for them if we step away from this kind of individualistic idea of parenting and and think together about the political change that we could affect for them. And of course, as you say, it's not totally illusory. There's still conflict, right? There's still going to be conflict between spending loads of time and money, for example, on being a climate activist and spending that time and money on other things that are really good for my children, on their education or or other things that are important to them. So we still have difficult choices. But I do think that that conflict is a lot less than people tend to think it is.
2: It's a gigantic question, I know. But what do you personally think we most owe our children?
3: I mean, it's a huge philosophical question, what exactly we (laughs) we owe our children. But most people
2: I have an annoying habit of doing that a lot on this show. I'm sorry.
3: (laughs) Most people who have sort of thought about this relatively recently tend to say, well, we owe it to our children to give them a good childhood. So to give them all the things they need while we're caring for them, but also to prepare them to be adults, to enable them to live flourishing lives as adults. And I think that makes intuitive sense. I think, you know, what I owe it to my children is to give them a good shot at a decent, flourishing human life. And that means caring for them now. It means thinking about what they'll need as adults and helping them to get that. But I also think now when we can't rely on our governments to protect our children's future because they're really not acting on climate change, being a good parent inevitably then has this other element of trying to think about what we can do to change that.
2: But you also push back against this parenting style that you call a parental saint. (laughs) That sounds like such a good thing to be. What could possibly be wrong with being a parental saint? Which is obviously a kind of play on the idea of a, a moral saint. Yeah,
3: so absolutely it is. So there's this great quote from Susan Wolf who says, I don't know exactly what a moral saint is, but I'm glad that neither I nor anybody I care about is one. The idea being that actually we wouldn't be able to do so many of the things that give our lives enjoyment and meaning if we were focused entirely on doing what we could for others all the time. And equally, she says, well, if we always did that as a society, we would lose other things that are incredibly valuable, great works of literature and art and so on. And I think similarly, we could say, well, as parents, if we throw everything we have at our children and deny ourselves and all our other interests, then it seems that a lot of value Would also be lost. And it's also unclear that that would be what's best for our own children. So, Harry Brickhouse and Adam Swift, who talk about this a lot, talk about the fact that actually, you know, it can be good for our own children to see their parents having their own interests. Though, of course, it's also important to have this family relationship and to do things you value together. So, it's a balancing act.
2: Yeah. There's just, there are all these tensions you're exploring in the book. You're talking about sending your daughter to school on Halloween in a kind of shabby costume or whatever, and she's into it, having a great time, but you feel guilty about it. You feel like you could have done more. And then you write, and now I'm quoting, this is about much more than Halloween costumes. When the sons of billionaires buy their way into US politics, comparative advantage becomes a matter of paying school fees or buying a house in a privileged zip code, booking language or math coaching, or even using contacts from your own school days to get your kid an internship? Given that the system is unfair, don't we owe it to our kids to make sure they don't lose out? The answer is yes and no. Tell me what you mean there, because to be honest, I just don't have a good answer here. I really don't. It it is a hyper-competitive world in lots of ways, and people who have inbuilt advantages tend to do better than those who don't. And while I know participating in this sham meritocracy perpetuates the whole thing. I also don't want my kids to fall behind and no one else does either.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is a very tricky question. And it's one that I come back to later in the book when I'm kind of acknowledging that, you know, I haven't solved all the problems. There are still some hard moral choices here. Because on the one hand, yes, what other people have in your society is going to make a difference to what your child will need for a flourishing life. So comparative advantage to some extent is important and will probably make a difference to what we need to give our children. But on the other hand, if we're talking about sort of wanting to push our children really far up the ladder to sort of give them a much bigger advantage than lots of other people rather than just a fair chance, then it becomes less clear that that's what we necessarily owe them. And it's not even clear that it's something that's, you know, totally justifiable to do when we think about all the other more fundamental needs of other people or the fact that actually our children and all children They need a safe future that they can all flourish in. So I think it's really hard to draw a clear line and say paying for, say, private school fees when is it a matter of of ensuring that your child has a decent education, maybe because they have special educational needs which need the extra resources or maybe because the other schools in the area are, are terrible versus when is it just a matter of trying to, you know, buy their way to the top of the tree. And Brickhouse and Swift again make this point of saying, well, you know, we don't like to think about it like this. Nobody thinks about it like this. But if you're trying to give your children that kind of competitive advantage, aren't you also trying to sort of push other children back by comparison? And so I think we can try and think about it by asking ourselves, on the one hand, what does my child really need for a decent human life? What are the really essential things for that or for their relationship with me, for us to be able to do things we both value together? Another thing that we can also ask is, well, if my child was going to look back from, say, 2050 or, you know, when they're an adult on this moment, which is certainly with climate change, really pivotal, we have this very limited number of years in which to get action, to keep climate change below 1.5 or even below 2 degrees C what would my child actually rather that I focused on? Would they rather that I focused on giving them, you know, an even better education than the perfectly adequate one they would otherwise have? Or would they rather that I worked with others to try and secure their future? And I think those kinds of questions can really help us when we're trying to make these decisions.
2: Part of the conflict here, at least to my mind, is between well-intentioned parents wanting to help build the institutions that will protect us and our kids in the future from things like climate change, And something, on the other hand, you say explicitly in the book, which is that, and now I'm quoting you, when it comes to protecting our children, the buck stops with us. And this is something I feel pretty intensely because I'm not sure how much faith I have in our institutions (laughs) moving forward for a million reasons we cannot get into here. But I think that you are right to caution parents against assuming that our institutions will safeguard our kids' futures. And if we are right to be worried about that, then how do you think we balance the desire to protect our kids as much as possible against the desire to sacrifice in service of institutions we think are failing, and in many cases have already failed?
3: So I think... Yes, I think it is a mistake to think that we can rely on current institutions to protect our children. I think it's quite clear that our governments aren't going to act adequately on climate change unless a lot more pressure is put on them. I also think it's really worth stressing that it's a very kind of privileged position to be in, only just to be realising that. So. It's a, you know something that only a middle-class white parent could be saying, oh my goodness, I've just realized that our government isn't looking after my children. For parents of color, that's something that they've been dealing with for generations. Yeah. But in terms of the institutions themselves, I think we're in a position now where it's not a sort of straightforward case of saying, well, my government's not going to protect my child, so I'm going to protect them as an individual myself, because we can't do that. Nobody... Possibly if they're a billionaire building a bunker underground, they can ensure some kind of future life for their child, even in extreme climate change situations. But for most of us, even privileged people, this isn't something that we can do alone. So actually, we have to say, well, look, isn't there a third option here, which is changing and challenging these institutions on behalf of our children? And that, I think, is why I end up sort of saying the most important thing that we need to do as parents is essentially to be activists. And I don't say that lightly, but I think that's a kind of unavoidable position when when we've got to this point.
2: And what does that mean, really, to be an activist? That's a term, at least in our discourse, that's a little loaded. What does it really mean at this moment in history about this issue in particular, to be an activist? It simply can't just be a matter of voting, right? We're talking about something much more concrete than that.
3: It's not just a matter of voting as i use it it means working with others to try and change what's happening collectively so to get a just response to these global emergencies so that could involve anything from petitioning banks and pension funds to change what they do to being part of kind of coordinated lifestyle change movements to move away from flying or driving or campaigning on the other hand to reform the public transport systems it can also also mean you know directly trying to lobby with or work with or even become oneself a politician and change what happens politically it could even involve civil disobedience i mean i think there's a huge range of actions there and what it makes sense for individual parents to do is very much going to depend on not only what's most needed, but also what opportunities they have, what talents they have, what skills they have, You know how much money they have, how much time they have. There's going to be lots of different things that people can do, from donating huge amounts of money to well-chosen charities, to spending their time in certain ways.
2: You mentioned civil disobedience. Are you familiar with Andreas Malm, his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline? Yes. He was on the show? People should revisit that show if, if they want to hear more about that argument he makes in the book. But in brief, he's sort of making the argument that, hey, look, given how dire this problem is, if you really want to be an effective activist on this front, well, things may have to get a little uh, a little dicey, a little less safe. We may have to take certain measures beyond civil disobedience, not necessarily blowing up a pipeline, but more subversive acts in order to instigate the sorts of changes we need. How does that argument sit with you?
3: So I think to start with, I would say that there's there's evidence that a wide kind of range and combination of tactics can work well together. So what different people do is going to depend on the situations they're in. And actually, sometimes that can work well. Yeah. But I mean, for me, I think the key moral distinction is between violent and nonviolent action. And by that, I suppose, I mean, there's a key distinction between civil disobedience and violence against property, on the one hand, and violence against people, which is just a clear moral no-no.
2: Yeah, I said this to Andreas, and I'll, I'll say it again here to you. Even though I certainly grant the distinction between violence to property and violence to people, purely as a political question, I think taking those sorts of measures now will probably undercut our efforts more than anything else. But, you know, you talked about your daughters earlier. (laughs) They're still a little young for this, but uh, let's just say in a few years, how would you react if one of your daughters came to you and said that they have decided that they're going to engage in subversive activities in defense of climate efforts? What would you tell them? That's a tough question, I know.
3: No, it's a tough question. I mean, and I encourage them to come. I mean, they, I've taken them on climate protest marches with me. I mean, I think that there is a clear philosophical defense of civil disobedience when the government is essentially not doing its part in the social contract. is not protecting children, future generations' basic rights. 100%. So that, that, you know, does give this clear justification for principled law-breaking but as you say, there is then this further question of, you know, what works. So I think what I would be saying to my daughters is, you know, have you done the research <laughs> on what's going to be effective? Have you thought through the impacts for yourself? But ultimately, it's up to them. I mean, I think that key difference is between violence against property and violence against people, the latter of which I would never, ever condone. But I want to bring up my children to understand the challenges that face them and to be aware of the range of options that there are for them in terms of tackling them. And they will then have the autonomy to work with others and decide for themselves what they want to do.
2: We've got to take one last short break. But when we come back, should we take seriously this question about whether or not we should have kids in a warming world? Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper-rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features, like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts, like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in you can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: There is a giant, awkward, looming question hanging over these kinds of conversations, and I have very strong feelings about it, and you, thankfully, address it head on in the book. And the question is, should we even be having kids at all? Now, I think this is a ridiculous question. I I'm, <laughs> will probably say much more about that <laughs> imminently, but lots of people don't.
3: Yeah, I thought it was really important to discuss this question. I mean, for me, the important question is really, you know, what do we owe our children when we have them? That was the one I really wanted to tackle in this book. But this is a real, it's a live question for a lot of people. People are asking this, and they're asking it for various reasons. So there's the the concern, if you like, about The world that you would be bringing this child into and, you know, is it wronging a new person to bring them into the world as it is now? And I I really understand that concern. And I think one of my fears of not acting on climate change is of leaving the next generation, you know, leaving my own children in a situation where they really do face this stark choice between not having children at all and those children having a terrible future, But I don't think that's where we are now, because I think we still have this third option. We have this option of, well, have children and do all we still can to protect their future. We can still do something about this. And then there's the other sort of main argument, which is the carbon impact of having children. It's one of the sort of biggest carbon impact decisions that we make as an individual. My view on that is what I do in the book is more kind of reflect on choices that I made and my husband made there rather than try and dictate to anyone else because I just don't think it would be appropriate to be doing that. As with all other individual choices like not flying and not driving, you know, there are moral reasons not to do something that has high carbon impact. But on the other hand, not having children would be such a huge sacrifice for many people. I mean, it's a really fundamental part for many people of living a flourishing life. It's a really amazing and valuable relationship. This crisis is caused by governments, fossil fuel companies. It is not caused by individuals to be sort of saying to individuals, including, you know, individual women whose bodies are ultimately in question areas, oh, you shouldn't be having children just doesn't seem like the right response. But I do think that, you know, because of the carbon impact and because actually we have so limited time as parents and there's so many things, if I'm right, that we need to be doing for the children we do have. I think there are questions to ask oneself about family size and the carbon impact or the impact on time that we have for our our other children and things to do for them is morally relevant. But I don't, I don't want to say that there's some kind of universal rule that everyone should stop at some set number of children because people have very different reasons for valuing different family sizes. It's just not reasonable to say there's just some rule that everyone should just stop at some fixed number of children or choose to do that. I don't think that makes moral sense. Yeah. And look,
2: I should say, while I think the answer to the question, should we stop having kids is very obviously, no, <laughs> no of, of course not. I understand the anxiety Out of which that question springs. Again, my son is four. Sometimes I do think about what might await him in the future. And it scares the absolute shit out of me to the point where I kind of just stop thinking about it, really. It is scary. It's too much. But the premise beneath the question is sort of what upsets me a little bit. Because it's both, I think, super counterproductive, but also fatalistic in a way. We just simply are going to have to reject. And I admit, falling into this trap sometimes myself, but it still remains true that our children aren't necessarily doomed. We don't know the future. We don't know what's possible. We have no idea how much happiness may come to our kids in the future. To have a kid at all is already an expression of hope. (laughs) And if we're done with hope, then we're just done.
3: I do agree with that. And I mean, I think it's if you've got a child, you can't be a kind of doomerist or fatalist about this, you have to hope. But I think there's a really important difference between kind of passive hope and what I call active or or earned hope here. So I think, you know, yes, in having children, it is, as you say, in many ways, a kind of declaration of hope, but I then think that we owe it to our children to try and work together to protect their futures rather than just kind of sit back and have the reaction that you sometimes see, you know, middle-aged people having to the, the youth strikers, for example, of just saying, oh, you give me hope, you're amazing as a generation, because it's not their job to do that. It's our job as parents to be protecting their future. Yeah.
2: You know, I think there's also uh, a bit of a failure to reflect on the history <laughs> of our species, <laughs> how bad it was, how bad it's kind of always been, and how comparatively awesome it is now. You know, The people who say these sorts of things that, you know, we should stop having kids for these reasons, almost by their own logic, they're saying basically no one really should have had kids ever virtually at any point in our history, because there has always been more suffering and therefore more bleakness. And I get the uniqueness of this particular existential risk. But nuclear destruction and world wars were also existential risk. I mean, imagine looking around during the bubonic plague or something and asking these sorts of questions, you know, against that backdrop. Some of the arguments today seem a little ridiculous to me personally.
3: Yeah. And you are right. We have faced, you know, existential threats as a society and a world before. I think one thing that is relevant here and now, as compared with, for example, the bubonic plague, years, is that we do have a reasonable choice now. I mean, at the time of the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, there wasn't really family planning. I mean, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an easy option true. not to have children. Whereas true, now, true. you know, we do have that option.
2: There is that. I, I just, I just think that there is a, a story to tell here—a story of incredible progress. Progress that's bumpy. Progress that is not at all guaranteed. And progress that has come at a stupendous cost, no doubt. And fellow humans are the reason that's the case. And if the future is going to be a place worth living in, it's going to be because our children made it that way.
3: I think I want them to have the opportunity to make it that way. So I agree with you. There's so many things that are good for the current generations. For example, you know, if we look at the progress made in medical science, the difference just in terms of that alone from you know hundred years ago is enormous. But at the same time, I think we are at a point now where there are these really real global threats. And I don't think it's enough, and I certainly don't think it's fair to kind of just rely on our children's generation to solve that for themselves.
2: No, you're right. No doubt about it. We need better institutions with better incentive structures that align with our actual interest. And and this is sort of the point. That's a political problem. We have a political problem more than anything else. And it's going to require a political solution. And that is going to require us, adults, young people, organizing and forcing that change. And this I guess taps into the frustration you're, you're hearing from me on some of the doom and gloomism, right? Like, it's just politically impotent and undercuts the hope that has to undergird any movement for change, you know? Like, let's kill the family and self-select our species into extinction is not a winning political slogan, <laughs> you
3: know? No, you're absolutely Right. Climate denialism on the one hand and kind of climate doomerism on, on the other hand are effectively doing the same thing.
2: Totally. They
3: are just stymieing action. They are meaning that people are not motivated to do anything. And so, you know, that is also an incredibly dangerous narrative.
2: It really is, you know. And look, this is a crucial point. Most of these arguments against having kids sort of take as a premise that the problem is obviously carbon footprint, but also population size, right? That's the main thing. But that is really wrong-headed right others have made this point but i'll echo it here population is actually mostly irrelevant to solving the climate crisis because we don't really have that much longer to meaningfully limit our carbon footprint we're going to have to leave fossil fuels in the ground <laughs> sooner rather than later and the relevant timeline for doing that is such that thinking in generational terms sort of misunderstands the problem
3: yeah, I mean, I think I mean population size will obviously make a difference to how easy or feasible it is for future generations to live within planetary boundaries, because it's one of the factors determining it. But I think the real danger with some population narratives is that they just end up kind of ignoring the huge differences in consumption between different parts of the world. And the fact that, you know, one person in the US is going to be using many, many times as resources or the ecological space, however you want to put it, of somebody who is born into, say, Sudan. I think that's a key difference. And it comes along with the fact that there's a real danger of a sort of population-focused narrative becoming a kind of attempt to push responsibility onto countries who have actually done least of all to cause climate change and often goes hand in hand with um, racist undertones or sometimes quite clear overtones. So I think population size is one of the factors that will make a difference, could make a difference to future generations and how easy it is for them to tackle climate change. But there are just huge dangers in focusing on it in a very simplistic way.
2: Yeah. And this is something you tackle in the book. You know, it's been a, um, an aim of corporate propaganda to sort of offload responsibility for this onto the individual. You know, the individual has got to make different changes in their life in order to deal with this problem. But is that is that what climate activists should be focusing on, right? On the individual's carbon footprint as opposed to these sort of larger structural political dynamics?
3: No, I think the priority is the political change. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It completely suits governments and fossil fuel companies to push this narrative of, well, this is all about individual choices. We can't do anything. You know, this is what people are deciding to spend and to use and to, to do with their time. But of course, that is completely unrealistic. I mean, the way in which our societies are structured, the decisions governments make, determine what it's possible or feasible for individuals to do. I mean, in parts of the US where public transport is just not an option, then people end up having to have cars. That wouldn't be the case if there was good public transport. Exactly. Also... Big fossil fuel companies. There's a lot of evidence of they're actively trying to manipulate the political process. So to try and blame this on individuals is just completely well. I mean, I would say it's wrong-headed. Except it's actually a completely deliberate strategy. And so I think that we have to recognise that what's needed is political change. Mm-hmm. And so I think as activists, and I think a lot of climate activists now really do recognise this is about focusing on what we can do to bring that about. Changing our own lifestyle and our family lifestyle can play an important part in that. There are reasons why we might want to change what we do as individuals. There are reasons why... But I think that it has to be seen as part of this bigger picture where the priority is focusing on, on getting the political change.
2: I agree. In the end, what we need is to change the structure of society. And not having kids does absolutely nothing to help us achieve it. We cannot live in a childless world, I think for obvious reasons, but we can and we must eventually live in a world of net zero emissions. And that's a political project that's going to have to be achieved via political means.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, for some sort of the birth strike movement, to some extent, I suppose it could be considered a political signal being sent, you know, we are telling you how bad things are, governments. We really are calling on you to act by saying we are so scared we're not prepared to have children.
2: Mm. Is there anything else you want to say to anyone listening, a parent listening or even non-parents listening to this conversation?
3: I want to acknowledge that I know that this is hard. I know that as parents, you we all work very hard and want the best for our children. And very much for me, this has been a process of learning as I go along, muddling through. I do still make lots of mistakes. I don't get it all right. And what I've tried to do in the book is lay out ways of helping to make sense of this and to make decisions that will work For you as a family because i do think i mean it's it's not an easy thing to face up to but i think it's better to face up to it and to try and do the sort of psychological and practical work to try and do something about this for our children we can't carry on denying it forever and i think our children's generation will be asking us a lot of questions if we try and keep ourselves and them in the dark
2: once again the book is called parenting on earth a philosopher's guide to doing right by your kids and everyone else. Elizabeth Cripps, thank you for coming in today.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at Vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, please share the link with your friends on all the socials. And remember, new episodes of The Gray Area now drop on Mondays, and only Mondays. Listen and subscribe.